Today, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. So for those of you that were with us, we left off in Genesis chapter 1. We finished up, or we were finishing up towards the end of chapter 1, but we didn't get quite all the way through. So we're going to pick up there, and then we're going to move into Genesis chapter 2. A lot of people see the Genesis stories. You'll even read this in some study Bibles, or if you take an intro to the Bible course, you'll be told that the Genesis account is made up of these different sources that were woven together much, much, much later. And there's different reasons for this. Different scholars have different views, but it all basically traces back to what's known of as the documentary hypothesis in Old Testament studies. And the documentary hypothesis and all of its variations throughout the centuries are basically that you had these different writers And you can identify these writers primarily by things like which name for God they use. So sometimes they refer to God as Yahweh. So that's called the Yahwist or the J source. Sometimes they refer to God as Elohim. So that's the Eloist source or the E source. Then there's the the one who compiled it all and and expanded on the covenant curses and the history of Israel and what would happen over the centuries, and that's known as the Deuteronomist or the D source. And then people posit a source that was concerned with maintaining priestly power, cultic power, and things involving sacrifices and proper maintenance of rituals, and that's usually called the priestly source or the P source. So JEDP are these four uh, hypothetical sources that were cobbled together over the centuries. Originally, they were separate documents of separate people writing about separate things, and then they were woven together and combined into what we now know of as the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, or sometimes the Hexateuch, the first five books plus Joshua. And there's different variations on this way of reading Genesis. It's 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 very common. It's probably the dominant view in uh, among certain parts of academia. And it's also uh, an incredibly... Um, unconvincing view, honestly, at least in my opinion. I, I don't give it much weight at all. I think it's based on misunderstanding ancient Near East writing styles. I think it's based on continental European assumptions in the 1800s and 1900s. And I think it does damage to the text in the sense that it breaks up what shows in all appearances unity based on artificial and hypothetical criteria that you would not do with any other document, uh, really, from the ancient world. And so I know there are people that maybe, uh, you know, may hold to it and they would want to argue over that. And by all means, you know, you can read any Old Testament journal of scholarship and you can hear all these arguments back and forth. But for what it's worth, I'm not operating from the documentary paradigm. I think it's woefully outdated and it will be a footnote in the history of biblical scholars uh, in the coming generations. Regardless, I think instead what you have in Genesis 1 and 2, instead of two different sources that were stitched together that are contradictory, I think instead you have um, what you see elsewhere in the Old Testament, which is recapitulation. You have an account that's given in its broad scope, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's everything. Then it, the text recapitulates. It jumps back to a specific point in that series or that event and says, now let's explore this in more detail. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, etc., etc." So from Genesis 1 to Genesis from Genesis 1-1 to the rest of Genesis chapter 1, you have this recapitulation. It's, it's unpacking everything it just said. 
Well, I think that that's what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2 as well. I think Genesis 1 gives the overall structure of the seven days of creation, the yoms. And then Genesis 2, around verse 4 or so, jumps back into, okay, now here's what was going on on the what we would call the sixth yom. Uh, the one that pertains to the creation of man and woman. And so it, it continues to, to narrow in on one specific aspect of the overall creation account. Now, not every scholar reads it that way, and there are many ways that people approach it and interpret it. Uh, but I think that's the one that does the most justice to the text as we have it, instead of relying on hypothetical sources that you know 19th and 20th century German scholars came up with. Uh, I think it's much better to take the text as is and see what we can make of it on its own before we start dissecting it and cutting it up according to random criteria that aren't even good criteria anyway. So we, we're going to jump back in. With that being said, we're going to jump back into chapter one where we stopped last week, which was that first poem, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That first poem in the Bible, and we saw how that sets humanity when humanity adam is first mentioned humanity is mentioned as a he and a they so there's corporate solidarity man is singular but man is also a community uh, of, of people and then we also saw that uh the first time man human adam is mentioned it's mentioned as male and female so before you get to the story that we know of as Adam and Eve later in the Bible, uh, in the next chapter, before you even get any of that, you have male and female together are Adam, human, and both of them equally together are the image of God. They bear God's image together. So humanity is corporate and humanity is male and female together. Uh, any, if it's lacking of those things, those qualities, it's not fully humanity uh, collectively speaking. And so concepts of bearing God's image are not gender-based. It's not like man is the image of God and woman is the image of God version 2.0. Uh, man and woman together are the image of God and both represent Adam, humanity. So then we pick up verse 28. Sorry, I just had lunch. I had something in my teeth. Verse 28, we pick up where God's blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every, every living creature that moves on the ground. So first thing to notice, God says, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. How do you be fruitful and multiply? You have sex. You make babies. That's the first commandment ever given. The first commandment God ever gave humanity in the Bible was have lots of sex and make babies. So whatever your views of biblical or of sexual ethics or anything like that, uh, later in the church, sex became to, came to be seen as a necessary evil. I think even St. Augustine called sex a necessary evil, that even sex among husband and wife was somehow tainted and sinful. And to that, the Hebrew Bible says, absolutely not. That sex the, the male-female union expressing that image of God as creator and bringing forth new life as part of creation, um, all of that is wrapped up in the image of God. It's his idea to begin with. Sexuality is God's idea. It wasn't after the fall. It wasn't after sin. It wasn't after Eden. It was from the beginning. It was literally the first command was go have sex. So 
whatever we believe about sexual ethics, and Disciple Dojo has a whole course called To Know and Be Known, Forming a Thoughtful Christian Sexual Ethic. It's available for free on the website, discipledojo.org. Click on videos, go down. You can take the whole course. It's entirely free. We unpack what all of scripture says about every issue you can think of pertaining to sex, sexuality, marriage, divorce, same-sex relationships, um, fantasy, all that kind of stuff, like singleness. We, we cover all of that. The point to keep in mind is from the beginning, God was the one that created it. The God of the Bible is not the God of Plato. He's not the God of some medieval scholars that taught that God was entirely unbodied and the material world was tainted by evil irreparably. And the whole goal of life is to get out of this shell of a body so that we can go off to heaven. That's, that's not a, that's a pagan worldview. That's not a biblical worldview. That was from the Greco Romans and other, uh, belief systems in the world. The biblical worldview was always God created our bodies. God created this earth. Creation is good. Our bodies are good. Sexuality is good. All of earthiness is good. Eating is good. Drinking is good. All of these things that, that later millennia, later centuries, people would kind of look down on as being unspiritual. The Bible says absolutely not. That it's very spiritual because it's part of God's creation and it's part of what he desires for his people. So beware of that. It creeps into Christian thinking. It creeps into Jewish thinking. It creeps into Islamic thinking. It creeps into uh, even secular thinking. The idea that earthly bodily equals bad and spiritual immaterial equals good. That's not a biblical worldview. And so we want to avoid that by all means. So God says the first command, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now we've already seen that God is creating humanity to rule over the earth in the sense of being his steward, to rule over in his place, to take care of, to have dominion over, not to exploit, not to destroy, not to ravage, not to pillage, not to um, corrupt, but to rule over, to take care of. Uh, we'll see this elaborated in the next chapter as well. So that's the creation mandate. But within that mandate, there's this interesting little phrase, subdue it, fill the earth and subdue it. What this means, this is foreshadowing. There's something in this creation at this point. We don't know what it is yet. We're going to meet it in the two chapters from now. There's something in the created order that humanity is tasked with overcoming subduing, bringing into order. Even, even uh, within a good creation, there's still a struggle that God has for humanity. We're going to find out, we're going to see a face of this uh, character in chapter three, but there's just a hint. It's not, you can't build a full theology off this, but it's just a hint. Even in the goodness of creation, there's a destiny for subduing and overcoming. That's part of what it means to be created. So it's not like God just created man and put him in the ground and said, Hey, just sit around, you know, just like if you've seen the Simpsons, the episode with Simpsons Bible stories, it's like one of my favorite episodes. And they have a, a, a little vignette of Homer and Marge are in the garden as Adam and Eve. And it's really funny, but it's also super unbiblical, but it's very much a pop notion of what the Bible teaches. So that's why I like The Simpsons. It's kind of a window into pop Christian culture uh, and, and all the things that Christians 
well-meaning Christians don't even know about their own Bibles. And that's a good, it's one of them is that the idea that Adam and Eve, that man and woman were just put on earth to just lay around, to lounge, to it's this idyllic, paradisical state. Um, you know, they're just hanging out in the garden, eating fruit, talking to animals, you know, running around naked. And all. No, there's, well, the naked part's true, but there was not, it, it wasn't like that. From the beginning, if you, again, stick to the text. Let's understand what the text says before we fill out our own stories, because most critiques of the Bible are not actually critiques of the Bible. They're critiques of what somebody thinks the Bible teaches, and a lot of them are right. If that's what the Bible actually taught, they would be correct. But that's we want to stay close to the text. So God says, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. God is giving humanity a mandate for being his vice regent. He is, he is in this story, humanity is going to be literally the image of God, the, the representation of God in the physical realm on this created world. Whether that creation took place over billions of years or whether it took place really recently, like some Christian fundamentalists would suggest. To me, it's immaterial. I mean, I lean towards the billions of year thing, but that's a that doesn't matter for how this passage is interpreted or how we read the Genesis account necessarily, because the point is theological, not geological. And, and it's a major hurdle for people when it comes to Genesis is they start reading it through the lens of geology and science and anthropology and developmental psychology and evolutionary biology. They start reading it through all these lenses. And like we talked about last week, you've already got off on the wrong foot. You've already started looking for recipes in a phone book instead of looking for phone numbers in a phone book. And so th <clears throat> that's what we want to avoid when we're reading Genesis is we want to avoid reading stuff into the text that's not necessarily there, but keeping it in its context as the beginning of the covenant document known as the Torah that God gave Israel to describe and to tell who their God is. Remember, think back to two weeks ago, that Lord of the Rings analogy. We're still in the preface, the voiceover by Kay Blanchett at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings movie. We haven't even gotten to the main action of the story, you know, Gandalf coming to shoot fireworks off at Bilbo's birthday. We're not even there yet. Like that's when the story starts in Lord of the Rings in the movie. We're still at that beginning voiceover that's telling about ages and empires and the creation of rings and people being overthrown and battles being fought and all of this stuff telescoped into this tight introductory uh, to get us into the story. That's where we still are in Genesis. And, and we're even at the beginning of that. So it's so helpful when you're reading the Bible, slow down. Just slow down and look carefully at what the text says. That's the first rule of reading scripture. Whether you're Christian, whether you're a skeptic, whether you're not Christian, you're just curious, whether you're just reading it as literature, whatever you're doing, stop and slow down and, and really pay attention to the text and, and let it speak itself rather than us trying to say what it's saying. So God gives humanity this mandate. He says, he extrapolates it. I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. Those are the two types of plants that were created on day three. They'll be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth, all the birds of the air, all the creatures that move on the ground, in other words, everything created on the next three days, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. 
God saw all he had made. It was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Now, people have read this. A very common way of reading this is saying, see, it used to be when God created the earth, he created everything to be vegetarian. He created everything to subsist on green plants. It says it right here. To everything that has the breath of life in it, that's all humans and all animals, I give every green plant for food. Well, maybe... It's kind of weird to imagine sharks eating green plants, um, ant eaters. I mean, what are they eat ants? That's the name. <laughs> so we're ant eaters eating green plants. Um, we're wolves chomping on lettuce. You know, like we have to be careful when we start again trying to extrapolate this out into modern scientific ways of thinking. Because remember, Scripture is perfectly capable of using phenomenological language. We talked about last week where it's just describing something in general uh, in a way that makes sense, but not necessarily scientifically accurate. Like we use the phrase sunrise and sunset, even though we know the sun doesn't rise or set. So interpreters have taken this passage in one of two ways. They've said, yeah, this means that at some point in the past, when God created everything, everything was vegetarian. Everything ate green plants. No animals ate each other. There was no predation before sin entered the world. Maybe. The text doesn't say that. That's one way you could read this. There's another way, and I tend to lean towards this way, that says, look, this whole account is full of phenomenological language and is, is written with a high literary style that's artistic and that's almost like a song. So pressing scientific accuracy on these things is as, is as valid as pressing for scientific accuracy when somebody says, what a pretty sunset that was. And you say, well, that's not a sunset because the sun doesn't set. It's actually the earth refraction, the earth rotation and light refraction through the atmosphere. Um, that's as pedantic as it would be to insist that this is saying all animals were vegetarians. Maybe not. Maybe this is a perfectly normal, poetic, mythological, in the true sense of the word, uh, theological way of saying all life depends on green plants. Every, what we would call, and if you want to use modern science, what we would call the food chain or the food web is that it all begins with green plants. Everybody eats something that eats something that eats green plants. That's how life on earth works. Whether it's algae in the ocean or whether it's plants on, on the earth, something's got to convert the sun's energy into fuel and plants do that. And then everything else either eats the plants or eats things that eats the plants or eats both. So there, in other words, this, the text allows for numerous interpretations. There's no reason to demand and press for a specific reading of this that may not actually be what's being taught. Could that be what it's being taught? Sure. Are, you know, are interpreters divided? Yeah, absolutely. Do Christians have different views on this? Yes. Is there one view that's the view that you have to have or else you're believing in a false gospel? No, no. There's room for interpretation, especially in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. By nature of the type of literature it is, there is an ambiguity and a fluidity of language that's not present to the degree it is in later verse. Uh, to the degree that it's present in these chapters, it's not present in the later parts of Genesis. But we have to keep in mind that we're reading a passage that is elevated prose. And we're reading a passage that's the beginning of the covenant and is explaining who God is and the role that we play in his 
heavenly temple, which is all of creation, that's the purpose of Genesis 1, not the order of land animals and plants and mammals and marsupials and algae and diatoms and ferns and moss and all that kind of stuff. It's not. It's not the focus of the text. So we just want to keep that clear. Um, we get into, so God saw all he had made. It was very good. There's evening, there's morning, the sixth day. And here we have the first chapter break in the Bible. And this is a great example. The chapters and verses were not originally in the text. Chapters in English Bibles, chapters weren't added until the 1200s AD. And verses weren't added until the 1500s AD in English Bible. So chapters and verses are fairly arbitrary. They are put in there by later editors or, or later Bible publishers to make it easier to delineate where the reader is in the text so we can all find our way if we're reading together. But when they were written, there were no chapters and verses. And so this is a great example of the first chapter break in the Bible being wrong. We're still in Genesis 1, even though it says chapter 2, because it's continuing on. This is so... Pay no attention to chapters and verse numbers when you're reading the Bible. They're this, just there to aid people in collective reading together or referencing which part of a text you're talking about. That's the only purpose for chapters and verses. There's nothing inspired about them. And the first one in the Bible gets it wrong. Because we're still in this account. We're at the, we're at the bookend. So what did, what did Genesis 1-1 begin with? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything. And then these days that are delineated. And now we're at the bot, we're at the, the other bookend, the other part of this inclusio, or not inclusio, but is that the right? Yeah, inclusio. Anyway, uh, yeah, we're at the other part of the inclusio where we have the beginning, heavens and the earth. And now, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So there's a bookend between the Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-1 in our Bibles. And now, underlying these six creation days, at the bottom, undergirding them all, is going to be this seventh day. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So the seventh day that undergirds it all is rest. And don't hear what the text is not saying. There's nothing in this about God being tired. There's nothing in the, the biblical definition of ceasing to work or Sabbath or resting that implies like, oh, God's saying, that was a tough week. I got to rest. We have to avoid uh, reading English connotations back into the Hebrew text. What you have in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4 is a highly structured account where the first three days, God creates these um, realms, light and dark, and then he divides it to be day and night. Uh, then after day and night, God creates, there's the, the seas and the sky. Then after that, there's the land and the vegetation. So, so these are the three realms on the first three days. Then on the next three days, God fills each realm with its corresponding ruler. So think back last week when it said God made the greater light and the lesser light to govern what? The day and the night. So you have day and night. I'm trying to do this backwards on camera and so you guys can follow along visually. But you have day and night. 
and then on day one, and then on day four, you have the thing that rules over the day and the night, which is the greater light and the lesser light and the stars. Then you have the waters below and the waters above and the firmament, so the sky and the seas. And then on day five, you have the fish, the swimming things, and the birds, the flying things, so the things that rule over the seas and the sky. Then on day three, you have the land and the vegetation. On day six, you have the animals and humanity that live on the land and consume and live off of the vegetation. So you see this pattern. I'm not making this up. This has been known for thousands of years. This is the framework pattern of Genesis 1. You have the realms, and then God fills each realm. And it all culminates with this day of rest, this Sabbath, wrapping it all up. So this is super easy to remember for any ancient Near Eastern Hebrew boy or girl who's asking their parents, who made us, who is Yahweh, this God we worship? You know, like what my Egyptian friend says that they worship this, this God, this God, and this God that made this thing, this thing, and this thing. Who do we worship? And the Hebrew parent can say, well, actually, we worship Yahweh, the, the creator of everything, heavens and the earth. And this is how he did it. And so there's this cool, stylized way of telling of God's creation in the pattern of an average work week. And that's the other thing. In addition to the framework of how it's laid out with three corresponding days with the realms and the rulers and then rest underneath it, there's also it's the whole thing is analogical. It's an analogy. God is portraying himself. The author of Genesis is portraying God as a worker, as an artisan, as a craftsman, as a builder who's going about his week. And it's, there's, a, there's, a key, there's ways we can see this that are key that get missed a lot. The refrain that's been throughout Genesis 1, there was evening, there was morning, day one. There was evening, there was morning, day two. Notice the order. It doesn't say there was morning and there was evening, day one. That would mean a whole 24-hour day. It says there was evening, there was morning. What does evening and morning bracket? It brackets the night. So evening, morning, day is there's sleep, and then you get up and you work. And then there's sleep, and then you get up and work. Evening, morning, God is being presented by the author of Genesis, whoever that is, whether it was compiled through sources, whether Moses had, had taken in uh, things passed down from generation to generation that were known to people going all the way back to Seth and Adam, or whether it was a later account that was stylized around Egyptian and Middle Eastern accounts in a way that told, like we saw last week, the true myth, the true version of the Babylonian epics. Regardless, uh, ultimately, it all got compiled by Moses as part of Israel's, this is who we are, the beginning of the covenant. And so God, the, the, the divine artisan, is being presented here, not as fighting battles to bring creation into account, like with the Babylonians, but rather just going about his daily routine. God is the worker writ large. He's the ancient, in the next chapter we're going to see, he's a farmer. He's a gardener. Uh, in this, he's an artisan. He's a craftsman. The verbs that are used in Hebrew are verbs that have to do with building things and constructing. And in addition, he's also the creator, the one who brings it all into being in the first place. 
So God is kind of like all of these roles, and it's like the author of Genesis is presenting it in ways that give us not not only a pattern or framework that we can use to, to lay it out and keep track of it in our minds and pass it on in a very poetic way, but also in a way that's analogical to what the audience would experience on a daily basis. That God is not this God who's totally unrelatable. That God, it's not like God's sitting in heaven and has no idea what it's like to be a, a, a craftsman or a worker, a day laborer in the ancient Near East. He's actually presented that way, even as while he's also still the king of the universe who's beyond comprehension, he's, he's transcendent, but he's also imminent, even in the way he's presented in this creation account. And so God rests, he blesses, he sanctifies the seventh day, and this is where the entire concept of Sabbath comes from, is this notion that Israel is going to be like God in so many ways, and one of those ways is their pattern of work. Now, whether God set it up this way as a lesson for Israel in the future when he would give them the Torah, the Sinai covenant with the Sabbath regulations and all of that, or whether this is reading, re, retroactively reading the actions of God in a way that reflects the later Sinai covenant stipulations of the Sabbath, that's up for debate. And it, it, it doesn't really matter because we're all in a position of having come after all of this. So whether it's a chicken or egg thing, did, did God create in a way that reflects the Sabbath so that people would do the same? Or did God give Israel the Sabbath commandments and then it, within that milieu cast his creation work in the format of a Sabbath work week to bolster that claim or that commandment about Sabbath? To me, it's, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. It doesn't make a huge difference. But some people really would want to dig in on that and go for it, by all means. Um, I think it's immaterial at this point. Verse 4 then, Genesis 2, 4. This is the first account of this phrase, toladoth. These are the ele toladoth. These are the generations of, or this is the origin of, or this is the account of. And the word, the phrase, ele toladoth, breaks Genesis up into these 10 sections. So if you want to see the sections of Genesis, how it's laid out, follow that phrase, these are the generations of, or this is the account of, or whatever your translation renders ele toladoth in English. Because that's what, it's like a hinge now. This, this Toledot section says, now, this is what happened before, and here's what's about to happen now. And so it's kind of like a, it's a transition phrase between the units or marking the units in Genesis. This is the account, Ele Toledot, of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God, and here's Genesis 2.4, literally NIV says, when the Lord God, it literally says, in the day of the Lord God's creating the heavens and the earth. So it's a, it's a non-literal usage of that word yom for day. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth. Now, this is, if you have the NIV, which is what I'm reading from, there's a footnote there. And it, you check that footnote down to the bottom of your NIV page, and it'll say, or land. This is an important point for how we read and interpret Genesis. The Hebrew word earth and the Hebrew word land are the exact same word. They're both the word Eretz. And today in Israel, for instance, Haaretz is a newspaper in Israel. 
and Aretz Israel is what people refer to as Israel. Well, that just means the land. Haaretz is the land. Aretz Israel, land of Israel. So the, it just means the land. The question is Genesis 2-4, what is the scope of what God is claiming? NIV, I think the NIV misses it here. I think the NIV's footnote gets it right. They should have flipped these. The footnote should be the, the actual reading. And I don't know if they updated that in the 2011 version or not. I'm reading from the 1984 NIV. But no shrub of the field had yet appeared in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the land. And the NIV says, on the earth. This is the first of those contradictory things that people have read into the text. They've said, well, Genesis 1 says you had, you know, heavens, earth, plants are created on day three, and then animals, and then people, blah, blah, blah. And then you read chapter 2. It's a different creation account because it says there's never been rain on the earth. The earth has never had rain, and there's no plants on the earth. So that's a different order than what you see in, in Genesis 1. And it all stems from how you translate Aretz. Is it land or earth? If you translate it as earth, you run into that problem. Yeah, it seems contradictory to what we've just read in Genesis 1, and you have to try to harmonize it. But if you translate it as land, in the normal usage of the word Aretz, then what it's saying is, okay, this whole creation account has happened. Now, when God was creating this stuff, there was this land and there wasn't any shrubs, there wasn't any plants, and rain hadn't come. It was what we would call the dry season. And so God then does what he's going to do in the rest of this chapter. So in other words, it's talking about a specific area of the earth, the land. And the land is going to evoke Israel and them living in the land or, or concepts of the land. It's, we have to be careful in Genesis, all doesn't always mean all. Later in Genesis, in the Joseph saga, you'll read the same, path, the same word. It'll say, all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain in Egypt because there was a famine in all the earth. And you have to realize that that's not saying that Eskimos paddled down from Greenland or northern Canada to buy grain. They don't know what grain is. Or Aborigines sailed over from Australia to buy grain. No, it's not all the earth, as in a globe. It's Kol Haaretz, all the land, all the area, everywhere that we're talking about in this story. And so that's, an, again, it's an example of this language that, that, that we have to not press for such literalism because we end up introducing contradictions into the text that don't need to be there. I mean, it, again, use the English example sunrise. We don't literally think the sun is moving up and down. We just say sunrise and sunset because that's what it looks like and everybody knows what we're talking about. So all the land is a way of saying all this area that we're in, that look around you, this, no rain had been here yet. That's what the, the focus is. So again, just you want to avoid reading in precision and literalism that aren't there necessarily. Hold a loose interpretation until the text demands something tight. So reading it as focusing on the land, a specific area, God zooming in and the focus now becomes an area of, of the earth. No shrub of the field had yet appeared in the land. No plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain in the land and there was no man to work the ground. But streams or mist, this is a word that can mean mist, it can mean streams, it, it's kind of doesn't really have a great equivalent, um, came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. 
The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living soul or a living being. Now we are seeing that we are recapitulating what was done in overall poetic account in Genesis 1. God created man in his image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now we're getting a zoomed-in version of what that actually looked like in, in, in a more particular focus. So in creating Adam, the first Adam that God creates is formed from the dust of the ground, from the stuff of the earth, from the clay, the dust, the dirt, what, however you want to phrase that, from, from earthy stuff. And there's a play on this. There's a Hebrew word play that doesn't come out in English. It's he formed the Adam from the Adama. He formed man from the ground. And in English, man and ground aren't related. But in Hebrew, Adam and Adama are almost the same word. So it would be like he formed a good example you could say in English that would carry the same sense is from the earth, he formed the earthling. Like, I mean, that's kind of, that has like space connotations, but you get the idea. Earth, from the earth, he formed the earthling. That's kind of what is going from Adama, from the ground, he formed Adam, the man. And he says, he, uh, Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So this is a cool, there's, there's, you could unpack a lot on this. Uh, but you have the image of, of humanity, Adam, this, this first human being formed from the dust of the earth, being created almost like an idol was created in pagan temples. And, and in fact, this whole account has connotations that resonate with accounts of pagan idols being created and put in temples. Because in a pagan idol, uh, temple ceremony, which we have from Babylon and from Egypt. We have, there are these ceremonies. Catherine McDowell, Dr. Catherine McDowell has written on this. Um, there, are, there were ceremonies in Egypt and in Babylon, which are the two cultures Israel was most familiar with, where an idol, the image of God, literally the idol of God, would have its eyes and mouth opened. And what that meant was there was this ritual whereby the, the idol, once it was fashioned, once it was shaped and formed and carved and molded and it, it kind of looked like the God and ready to be installed in the temple to be a functioning idol. Before that, there had to be a ceremony where the idol's eyes and mouth were opened because the idol needed to be able to see the worshiper who was coming to present the offering and the idol needed to be able to eat the food because that's what the worshiper was presenting. And so this ritual, I think it's, it's got a name in Egypt, like the Miss P, Pit P, or, or it's some funny name like that, um, the mouth opening ritual. That was what the ancients would do. And only after that ritual had been performed and the, the Ka in Egypt, the, the, the essence of the God had entered into the idol, then the idol was now a full representation of the God. It would be installed in the temple. Usually there would be a garden setting because people would bring fruits. They would bring meats. They would bring dishes. The, the, the God was surrounded in this idyllic, lush garden setting. And you would go and worship in his temple, which was usually adjacent to it. And all of these images, that's what the ancient world knew for their worship, bringing food to the God. That's what it was. Well, the Genesis account, you have God creating not a temple, but all the earth. And now when it's time to have the image of God 
put in the temple, which is the earth, he's formed from the dust of the ground and God breathes into him. Breath enters into this image of God and he doesn't become an idol that's functioning. He becomes a living thing. He becomes alive. Israel, that's the one thing that Israel, the reason that they derided idolatry so much is they, they would mock idols, you know, read some of the prophets and they point out the idols are like this thing that you carved out of wood or that you made out of metal and you're going to offer it food and you're going to pray to it and you're going to ask it to do, it can't do anything. It can't even get its own food. It just sits there in the temple and you somehow ascribe deity to it. Our God is the God of the heavens and the earth. Who is the representation of the God of the heavens and the earth? Adam, us. Man and woman, male and female. We are God's idol. We are God. So Israel took the concepts of pagan idolatry, and Genesis takes the concepts of pagan idol making and temple consecration and completely subverts them and says that innate desire for worship that you have is true. And that innate desire that there is something beyond that you know you need to get into relationship with somehow is valid. But you're doing it wrong. Like Paul would say at Mars Hill, the thing you worship in ignorance, let me explain it to you how it really is, this unknown God. So Genesis is already doing resident, giving resonances of that in the way it describes the formation of the man and the woman. Check out Catherine McDowell's book. Um, I can't remember the title. It's an academic book. It's not a popular read. So she'll reference uh, Hebrew, Babylonian, Egyptian. And it's, it's, you know, it's a dense read. But I think it's, she makes good points theologically that there are resonances of the Egyptian and Babylonian image, eye-opening, mouth-opening ceremony in God's creation of the man, first man and the first woman as his image the image of God, male and female. So God <clears throat> forms the man in the dust of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being, spirit plus body together, living soul. That's humanity. Humanity is not just a disembodied spirit that has a shell of a body. And, and humanity is not just a body with nothing beyond. No, spirit, body together, living soul. That is what is the image of God. That's what we are as created beings. Now, look, there. lo and behold, we're going to read about a garden. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Just like in a pagan temple, you would install the idol in the garden temple of the God you were worshiping. Now God is doing that, but on a cosmic scale. It says there's a garden. There's, If you've ever been to the Middle East, a garden is paradise. Because the area is arid, it's rugged, it's mountain, it's rocky, uh, it's not idyllic, and it's a hard land. So the idea of a garden already connotes like God has to be that God has to be there in order for there to be a garden in this arid climate. And so it, the text just says God planted a garden in the east, and east would be from the from the perspective of modern day Israel. So to the east of Israel today is Jordan, Iraq you know, Saudi Arabia. Um, so somewhere in that vicinity, like eastward, God planted a garden in this. So it's not like the garden was Eden. Eden was this general locale. And in that locale, God planted a garden. And in that garden, he put the man that he had created. So it's like his special, this, this, this special area. 
Um, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now the stage is being set, the, the settings, uh, the stage settings are being put up and you have this place where humanity, like the world is what it is and outside there's no, it's arid and dry, you know, no shrubs of the field, plants are growing. It's, it's what it is. If you go to that part of the world today, it's just dry and desert. But within that, God plants a garden. God has a special place and he puts man in there and he surrounds humanity with what they need to live which is food and protection, shelter. It's a, he, he's creating this little microcosm of a place for this first Adam from where they will spread, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So the goal is moving out from Eden. They won't stay in Eden forever, at least the goal, because the command was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So the goal is start in Eden and spread God's presence, God's temple presence, God's covenant presence outward in all directions over all the earth. Now that plan gets derailed in chapter three, but that was the plan in the beginning. And he gives them everything they need. He gives them all the food that they need, things that are pleasing for the eye, you know, just seeing this fruit that's lush and that's, that's delicious and it's nourishing. And then there's two trees and these have been the, the subject of endless speculation. But we just need to clear up one. Uh, there's this tree of life, which we'll find out later. They have to eat from that tree in order to live forever. Man is not created immortal. Uh, there's a tree of life, and there's not the tree of knowledge. This is, a, again, another misreading. It's not a tree of knowledge. It's the tree of knowing good and evil. It's, the tree, it's not the tree of knowledge. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those are two very different things. This text gets misread all the time in secular circles and even in some Christian circles as saying, well, there was one tree and it represented knowledge and humanity wanted knowledge and God punished them for seeking knowledge. That is garbage. That is absolutely not true whatsoever. The text does not back that up in any way, shape or form. That is folk theology, urban legend. If somebody says that, Trust me, they have not read Genesis very closely or carefully, and they are not speaking from a place of authority. It's knowledge of good and evil. And to know in the Hebrew Bible usually carries the connotation of to experience, to have experience. It's the same verb that's going to be used for sex in two chapters from now. To know means to experience, not just to know. It's not about knowledge. It's about the experience of good and evil. And humanity does not is not innately born with that. That's something that they this this tree is put there, and we'll see why later um, as we unpack this more. But that's the setting. Now to delineate kind of the boundaries of this, verse ten: a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, that general place Eden, and then it watered the garden. From there, it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds around through the entire land of Havilah where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there also. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds throughout the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now this is all we get by way of, of geographical information. And unfortunately, it is not much to go on. 
people have read this and have tried to go find the Garden of Eden, good luck. You're not going to find it. These rivers don't exist anymore. Tigris and Euphrates, they do, but they don't really join together anywhere. They don't have a, a common headwater. The, the Pishon, the Gihon, no clue where those are. It says the land of Havilah and the land of Cush. That could be Cush down all the way in uh, Ethiopia. Or that could be uh, Cush as in the, where the Kassites are from, up, up somewhere in Mesopotamia. We just don't know. The text doesn't give us all the information. And this is thousands, maybe millions, depending on what your science view is. This is long before modern geography. So we don't know what the conditions were in the ancient Near East, in the Mediterranean basin, in any of you're, you're grasping at straws to try to nail this down to a certain place geologically in today's world. But that's not really the point anyway. This is just giving the kind of general area where it is. And also the things mentioned here will come up later in the biblical text, like gold, resin, onyx. Uh, these will be things that are associated with the temple, with God's presence, with worship of God, um, you know, through the burning of incense or whatever. There, there's just there's there's connotations in this that it's it again. Think of the Lord of the Rings analogy. We're still in the voiceover, so we're getting glimpses of ages past. We're not getting our questions answered. We're not. You you will never find the Garden of Eden by following the geography of the Bible. Is not trying to give that. Is just giving a sweeping flyby of of primeval history, and it just mentions this place. So, the, would the ancient readers have known? Yeah, they would have at least known in the general direction. Uh, but we don't get bogged down in the weeds trying to go find that because the important part is coming up in this one, verse fifteen. We got about ten more minutes. Verse fifteen: The Lord God took the man Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. In Hebrew, literally, this says to guard and to keep it. This is the same set of verbs that are used in Numbers 37, 37 verse 8, to describe what the priests are to do in the tabernacle. The priests, the Levites, their job in and around the tabernacle is to guard and to keep the tabernacle. To guard in the sense of keeping people from approaching uh, who don't have authorization and to keep, meaning to upkeep, to take care of, to do maintenance. This is the role of the first man, Adam. Humanity is the priest in God's temple. They are to guard and to keep, and the temple is the garden. And that means, therefore, that there's something outside of the garden that is going to be trying to approach the garden, that they're going to have to guard the garden. And they're going to keep, they're going to take care of, they're going to upkeep the garden as gardeners, as agriculturalists, as people who are tilling the earth and planting, you know, like overseeing the fruit and harvesting. This is like humanity was created to do this. So this work in God's garden is analogous to the priest's work in God's temple. That's one of the reasons people see temple resonances all throughout Eden. And Eden is later frequently 
uh, intertwined with notions of temple and God's presence. And even the new Jerusalem in the new creation, when God comes in Revelation and everything's made new, the new creation, the ultimate destiny of everything is this city coming down from heaven. But the image that the city is described with is Eden imagery, even down to the tree of life being there. So you can see the bookend of the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, by noting that as well. But we're running out of time. Let's get as far as we can. Um, Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, and literally in, in Hebrew, it says on the day you eat of it, or that phrase when you eat of it is fine, you will surely die. In Hebrew, you will absolutely die, or dying you will die, I think is how you would say it if you wanted to do a literal reading. So God's emphasizing it. There's, you can eat from any tree in the garden. All these trees I've planted, all this fruit is yours, everything. There's just one. Don't eat this one. Everything else you can eat, not this one. So it wasn't like God said, here, you can have this one tree, but don't eat anything else. It's the complete opposite. God said, you can eat anything you want. All the trees. It's just one. Don't eat from that one. When you eat that one, you're going to die. Now, what did death mean to somebody who didn't experience it? What would Adam even know dying to mean? This is before death had entered into the human realm of existence. We don't know. Some people have said this shows us, this is one of the, the, the tangential arguments for predation existing outside of Eden, that that humanity could look, that Adam could look outside of Eden to the wild, to the, to the, you know, animals eating each other and dying and all this kind of stuff that happens outside of Eden and extrapolate from that. I need to follow God lest that happens to me. So they see that maybe, I mean, I think you could make a pretty decent case for something like that, but the text never says. Again, the text doesn't give us all the details we want to know. It doesn't give us the psychology of Adam and Eve. It doesn't, well, Eve's not even on the scene yet. It doesn't give us any of these things. It just gives us the general flyby overview, big picture, the creation of the covenant uh, or the creation of the, the, the world in which God will make a covenant with his people. So we have all these questions we want to ask the text. And it's not like we shouldn't ask the questions. We should ask the questions. But we should be open to the fact that the questions may not be answered by the text. And they may not even be able to be answered apart from the text. Or we may get different answers that will be based on how we read the text. So the the longer I study, especially the Old Testament, especially Genesis, and the more I stay, when, once I learned Hebrew um, and, and Greek, but mainly Hebrew, ambiguity is so much more present than we are comfortable with. Usually, North North American, Western educated evangelical Christians, like we want all of the answers, and we want it. You know, just give me the facts. Give me you know, tell it to me clear. I don't want to. Don't give me poetry. Don't give me ambiguity. Don't give me any of that. But that's not what the ancient world uh, communicated in. And that's not what God communicating to his people in the ancient world communicated to them. So we have to be ready for the fact that the Bible may not answer the particular questions we're asking of it. And when it comes to things like Adam, Eve, the garden, where was the Garden of Eden? Can we still go there? Did the flood wipe it out? 
Where, you know, like when was this? How long ago is this? Are we talking like 5,000 BC? Are we talking 50 million BC? I'm just pulling that out of nowhere. Humans weren't around then, even in science terms. But whether you're talking about thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, um, all of these questions we have, the text doesn't give us the answers that we want. And so we have to be okay with that and say, okay, God, what are you telling us? What is this text? What would the original readers, what would the Israelites camped around the base of Mount Sinai, receiving the law of Moses, the Torah, with this at the beginning of it, what would they have interpreted this to mean? What would they have heard through the Spirit? And then we can ask the questions how this applies to our modern lives, but only at the tail end. Um, we got to go. We are out of time right now. I think my Facebook live feed might have dropped. I don't know. But we will pick it up next week. Next week, we'll jump back in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to finish out because we're going to meet. We're going to see that uh, Adam, things are good, but they can be better. And he's not fully Adam yet. There's still a missing component to this image of God. And so, yep, we're going to call it a day. You guys have a great week. Uh, We'll see you back here next week, Tuesday at noon. Bye.